Now we go to Romans chapter 14. We closed in our last session last week with verse 10, and I'd like to open with that closing part there especially, but I'd like to say to you that you always have to check yourself to see what is your motive in judgment. When you make a judgment, what is your motive behind it? Is it that love of God in the renewed mind without any hypocrisy? If it's that, you're all, you'll always be right on. And there really is no judgment that any man can make of any other man except to sit down and to show him the word. And it's the word that has to be presented. It says, Why dost thou judge thy brother? Why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. Verse 11, For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, Every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. Verse 12, So then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. The account of himself to God in verse 12 has a great deal to do with the phrase, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. The word Christ is in the King James, but all the major texts have the word God in it. And that's what it ought to be. It's a matter I want to share with the core tonight in all the depth that I can get into to bless you, to give you an understanding as completely as possible of the judgment seat. There is no condemnation for the born-again believer. We know that. His trial was held in Christ as dead with him. The believer's sentence was rendered and subsequently endured in the person of another, namely Christ Jesus. The judgment seat for every believer, where he, according to verse 12, shall give account of himself to God, is for rewards, not condemnation. The word bema, translated judgment seat, must be understood and it must be rightly divided or you'll be in confusion a lifetime. In Acts chapter 7, talking about Abraham, in chapter 7, this is Stephen, before they killed him, talked about Abraham. And in verse 5 it says, And gave him non-inheritance in it, that is, in the land of Haran. No, not so much, much as to set his foot on, that he promised that he would give it to him for a possession to seat after him. Not so much as to set his foot on. Set his foot on are two words, the first of which is the word bema, B-E-M-A. The second is podos, P-O-D-O-S. The podos, I think, we can all understand from podiatry, foot specialist. It's really, you wonder how they got to these words as to set his foot on when the word bema appears in the text 
The word bema is used at times in the sense of a place where someone stands up on. It's just wide enough for someone to stand on. In other words, I could stand on a platform where I would be speaking to you tonight, and if that was just wide enough for me to stand on, it would be called a bema. At other times, it is wide enough to place a chair on it, and the individual may be seated, like I'm seated here teaching you tonight. This I can illustrate to you and I think clarify it for you considerably. If you'll remember the word cathedra, cathedra, C-A-T-H-E-D-R-A, cathedra, from which we get an English word, what? Cathedral, right. Katridra means chair, means a chair. We got the word cathedral from this word because a cathedral is considered to be the bishop's church in a diocese or in an area. Whenever you have a cathedral, you have a bishop's church. And the reason it was called cathedral is because that's where the bishop had his chair, Catridra. Now, that illustration will help you to understand Bema a little too, because the bishop's chair being in the cathedral, the word cathedral has a broader meaning than just the bishop's chair. The word Bema, comes from the word bino, B-A-I-N-O, bino. The word bino means to tread. Joshua chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon. That's the word bino in the Septuagint. Now the Greek word bema, or judgment seat, comes from this word bino, to tread. That's why set his foot on, I can understand from Acts 7-5, means to tread. In a cathedral, all the people would stand. Later on, the bishop, when he would speak ex-cathedra, then he'd sit down in the chair because then he represents judgment. Otherwise, he is simply making an oration or a declaration. In the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 4, And Ezra the scribe stood on a pulpit of wood. It's a platform of wood. The Septuagint reads, a bema of wood. That's what it was. It was a bema of wood. A judgment seat. A judgment standing place. And the thing he did there, he opened the book and 
all the people stood and he read the word to them, the scroll. In Acts chapter 12, in verse 21, Acts 12, 21, and upon a set day, a certain day, Herod, dressed in royal apparel, sat upon his judgment seat. Bema is the text. Sat upon his judgment seat and made an oration, made a political speech. So the Bema in its tightly knit meaning is always a judgment seat of either condemnation or rewards or a larger meaning of a place where anyone would stand, make a declaration, an oration, or read the word. That specially prepared place is called a bema. So in the light of that, wherever the word of God is taught, whether a man is seated or whether a man is standing, in the light of all that, that's a bema. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, and in verse 27 we read, For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his messengers, angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. This is the personal presence of the return of Christ upon the earth after the gathering of the saints, born-again ones. In chapter 19, and in verse 28, I want, Jesus said unto them, this is Peter and the rest, because Peter has just said, they forsook all and followed him. What are we going to have for doing all this? Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in this regeneration, this is in the new birth, Titus 3, 5, when the Son of Man shall sit on the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of what? Israel, it's the Bema again. In 25, Matthew 25, verse 31, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy messengers or angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another as the shepherd divideth his sheep from the what? That is judgment, same throne we've been reading about. Now in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, it says, For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. I want to check 2 Corinthians with you, chapter 5. 
chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, verse 10 says, 2 Corinthians 5, 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat, the bema of Christ, that every one may receive the thing done in his body according to that he hath done, whether good or bad. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3, But with me it's a very small thing that I should be examined or judged of you, or a man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self, for I know nothing of which I am guilty. Yet am I not hereby justified, but he who judgeth me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest, show openly the counsels of the heart, and then shall every man have praise, recognition, rewards from God. The record in John that we read, 522, along with the next scriptures that I've read, and a few of them from Matthew, have been some of the arguments that the Trinitarians have used to prove the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, saying that in Romans it's a judgment seat of God, yes, but that judgment seat is identical with the judgment seat of Christ. And they use this one from John 5, 22. The Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. There has to be something wrong in the logic of that statement they utilize, for it says he committed all judgment to the Son, then the Son cannot be God, nor can God be the Son. In Romans chapter 14, in verse 11, following upon the judgment seat of God, it says, for it is written. It is written. Well, then let's go find where it is written. Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45. Verse 21. Everybody has to look at this now. This is not an easy evening of putting stuff together for you, but it's together. Verse 21 of Isaiah 45. Everybody have it? Tell ye and bring them near, yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient times? Who hath told it from the time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else beside me. A just God and a Savior, there is none beside me. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. You will have noticed in 21, have not I the Lord and there is no God beside me. I have sworn by myself, verse 23, 
the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return that unto me unto me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear or confess now in Romans chapter 14 for it is written verse 11 as I live saith the Lord it's a quotation from what I've just read you from Isaiah the Lord is Jehovah in relationship to his people every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God to me God Jehovah is always God in relationship to his people in one sense class here's the word of God the declaration of this word is Jehovah to you and to me God's word in relationship to his people Jesus Christ as the Son of God was God's only begotten Son representing Jehovah Jesus Christ was God's only begotten Son on the level of the senses always doing the will of the Father and carrying out God's will and establishing the judgment by what he declared as God's word. So the judgment seat of Christ with the return or after the gathering together with the final return upon, of Christ upon earth is not the identical as the appearance before God in judgment. This is a judgment upon the earth for which Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son, will be taking the place of God in the judgment of the nations and others who have to appear before him. In Romans 14, verse 11 again, it is written, and the reason it's stated it is written, then you can go right back to read it, and that's exactly what it means. As I live, saith the Lord, this is the Lord God, Jehovah, Elohim, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to Elohim the Creator. Jesus Christ represented God upon earth, communicating God to people on the senses level as God's only begotten Son. Unto God every knee shall bow through Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal or agree with God. Verse 7, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a doulos and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man he humbled himself became obedient unto death even the death of the cross wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven things in earth and things of earth and that every tongue should confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the what? Father. That is a build-up and an expansion of the record in Isaiah 45, 23 that I read a little while ago. And here in the book of Philippians, the word of God speaks regarding the prize. While in 2 Timothy, the word of God speaks regarding the crown, the righteous judge. In Romans 14, verses 13, 14, 15, and 16, gives the attitude of the believer and the effects of his actions on others. Let me read these verses with you. Let us dare not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a what? Stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth, selects for honor anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Verse 15, But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably, destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. Reading these verses, you can clearly see again that renewed mind love without hypocrisy is far more important than my stubbornness to exercise my privileges, even though I have the legitimate liberty to do so. I know, verse 14, and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. That's the first great principle. The second great principle, which we'll be getting to, is in verse 19. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for what? And peace and things wherewith one may edify, build one another up. Two great principles of truth set forth here. The first one is nothing unclean of what? Itself. The second one is follow after the things which make for peace and edify. Frequently these great truths are missed when people read Romans 14 perhaps because of our wrong teaching or previous Sunday school training or theological work. I am persuaded nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth, esteemeth is selects for honor, anything to be unclean, to him it's unclean. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, all things are lawful, unto me. doesn't say profitable, it says lawful. But all things are not expedient. They are not profitable. 
All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Remember that. We may be coming back to it again later. Verse 13. Meats or foods for the belly, and the bellies for foods, but God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord. Talking about the church, the church body. And the Lord is for the body, the church. This great principle that I read to you from Romans 14 is brought to light again, not only in verse 14, I know and am persuaded, nothing unclean of itself, but verse 16, let not then your good be evil spoken of. Let not your freedom be evil spoken of. Verse 20, for meat or food destroy not the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but is evil for that man who eateth with offense, or to be offensive. Verse 22, hast thou believing Mature Christian believing, the initiated one, have it to thyself before whom? Happy is he that condemneth not himself in that thing which he alloweth. And verse 23. But he who doubteth is damned if he eat because if it is not out of believing and whatsoever is not out of believing is sin. Let's compare Mark with all of this. Chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. Verse 18. And he saith unto them, Are ye so without understanding also? Do ye not perceive that whatsoever thing from without entereth into the man, cannot defile him, make him unclean, because it entereth not into his heart, but into the belly, and goeth out into the draught, purging all meats, cleansing all meats. The revised version of Mark 7, I want to read to you. Mark 7, 18. And he saith unto them, Are ye so without understanding also? Perceive ye not that whatsoever from without goeth into the man, it cannot defile him, because it goeth not into his heart, but into his belly, and goeth out in the draught. This he said, making, making all meats clean. Purging all meats is King James. This 1881 is much better for my understanding anyways, making all meats clean. And this making all meats clean deals primarily with the ceremonial usages. You need not look this verse up because I'm sure it's very familiar, but you ought to note it. Titus 1.15, under the pure, all things are what? Pure. 
I want to go back to 1 Corinthians, as I told you I might. Chapter 6, 6, 12. All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. The word expedient is the Greek word sumphero, S-U-M-P-H-E-R long O. Expedient is sumphero, S-U-M-P-H-E-R long O. Its literal meaning, according to usage, is all things do not bring together or bring together justly. In our day, it has a connotation many times, expedient being polite. That is not the context of the literal meaning of that word. Expedient means all things do not bring together, bring together justly. In Romans 14, keep your finger in Corinthians, I'm coming back, but I want to go back to 14 for a moment. Follow after those things which make for peace and the things wherewith one may edify, build up one another. That's at verse 19. The second great principle. And the second great principle is inherent in 1 Corinthians 6.12 in the statement, I will not be brought under the power of any. I will not be brought under the power of any. Brought under the power of those words brought under the power of is one Greek word and the word is exousiazo e-x-o-u-s-i-a-z-o e-x-o-u-s-i-a-z-o long o Now, this was interesting to me. Bring under the power of is exousiazo. While all things are lawful, the word lawful is the word existed, from which we get the word exousia. The word exousia is from the root word existent, meaning authority. Bring under the power of is the exercised authority. All things are lawful, existent, authority, powerful, right on for me, but I will not be exousiaso brought under the power of any because it is not expedient. It will not bring together justly and rightly. The Weymouth New Testament in modern speech. I'd like to read you chapter 8 from 1 Corinthians to give you a flavor that I think will bless you. Now as to things which have been sacrificed to idols, 
This is a subject which we already understand because we, have, we all have knowledge of it. Knowledge, however, tends to make people conceited. It is love that builds up. If any man imagines that he already possesses any true knowledge, he has as yet attained to no knowledge of the kind to which he ought to have attained. But if anyone loves God, that man is known by God. As to eating things which have been sacrificed to idols, we are fully aware that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no God but one. Four, if so-called gods do exist, either in heaven or on earth, and in fact there are many such gods and many such lords, Yet we have but one God, the Father, who is the source of all things and for whose service we exist, but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom we and all things exist. But all believers do not recognize these facts. Some from force of habit in relation to the idol, even now eat idol sacrifices as such, and their consciences being but weak are polluted. It is true that a particular kind of food will not bring us into God's presence. We are neither inferior to others if we abstain from it, nor superior to them if we eat it. But take care lest this liberty of yours should prove a hindrance to the progress of weak believers. For if anyone were to see you, who know the real truth of this matter, reclining at tables in an idol's temple, would not his conscience, supposing him to be a weak believer, be emboldened to eat the food which has been sacrificed to the idol? Why, your knowledge becomes the ruin of the weak believer, your brother for whom Christ died. Moreover, when thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you are in reality sinning against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall, never again to the end of my days will I touch any kind of animal food for fear I should cause my brother to fall. That's the eighth chapter from Weymouth. It is also interesting, the translation from the New English Bible of chapter 8, now about food consecrated to heathen deities. Of course, we all have knowledge, as you say. This knowledge breeds conceit. It is love that builds. If anyone fancies that he knows, he knows nothing yet in the true sense of knowing. But if a man loves, he is acknowledged by God. Well then, about eating this consecrated food, of course, as you say, a false god has no existence in the real world. There is no god but one. For indeed, if there be so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things toward whom we move, and there is one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things came to be, and we through him. 
But not everyone knows this. There are some who have been accustomed to idolatry, that even now they eat food with a sense of its heathen consecration, and their conscience, being weak, is polluted by the eating. Certain food will not bring us into God's presence. If we do not eat, we are none the worse, and if we eat, we're none the better. But be careful that this liberty of yours does not become a pitfall for the weak. If a weak character sees you sitting down to a meal in the heathen temple, you who have knowledge, will not his conscience be emboldened to eat food consecrated to the heathen deity? This knowledge of yours is utter disaster to the weak, the brother for whom Christ died. In thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience, you sin against Christ. And therefore, if food be the downfall of my brother, I will never eat meat anymore, for I will not be the cause of my brother's downfall. You see, the record so clearly indicates that it wouldn't be the love of God in the renewed mind and manifestation without hypocrisy if a strong believer does this in the presence of a weak believer. In Romans 14, a few more great words in here that we will have to check with you. In verse 15, If thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Charitably is the love of God in the renewed mind in manifestation. Destroy not him. You couldn't destroy a brother for he too has eternal life, right? So immediately you know there has to be something wrong. The word is separate or put away. The strongest word that could be used is ruin. At this point where the word destroy is, I have a manuscript notation, the word separate or put away instead of destroy. Then I told you that the word good of verse 16 is freedom. Verse 17, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, joy, through Panumahagio and the Holy Spirit. For he that in these things serves Christ, does the will of God, serves Christ, is well-pleasing to God and approved of what? Men. Well-pleasing to God and approved of men. Men, believers, who are mature as well as believers who are not as mature. And then verse 19, Let us therefore follow after the things which make for what? Peace and things wherewith one may edify, build one another up for meat or for foods. Destroy not, do not put away, separate or ruin the work of God. All things indeed are what? Pure. But it is evil for that man who eats that to be offensive to show his liberty or the freedom he has in Christ to do as he fool pleases. That's sin.
Verse 21, it is good neither to eat flesh nor drink wine nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth or is offended or is made to continue to be weak. If you have believing, verse 22, if you have mature believing, you should have the love of God in the renewed mind without any hypocrisy. If you've got that greatness, that great maturity, you have it to yourself before God. You don't go out among the other believers who are weaker and flaunt your liberty or the freedom you have in Christ Jesus. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in that thing which he alloweth because of his maturity in Christ. But, the word and is the word but, in contrast, 23, he that questions or doubteth isn't sure of it. He's damned, he's hurt, he's wounded. If he does eat, it's going to hurt his head. His head can't take it because he eateth not of faith, because it is not out of believing. He's just putting on a front, not really out of believing, therefore his head can't take it, and he will feel condemned. For whatsoever is not of faith, for whatsoever is not out of believing, or from believing, that is sin. So you quit boasting about having liberty and freedom in Christ Jesus, when in reality that thing which you're doing really exercises authority over you. I wrote the following this afternoon. As a believer, you may scream, yell, or cry, saying, this invades my sacred rights as a son of God in my standing with him. Things that I've taught you here from Romans 14, which I believe the word of God plainly teaches. And we have had people in the way corps as well as the way ministry who have screamed and they yelled and they cry saying that our teaching or what we stand for and believe, Romans 14 says, invades their sacred rights as sons of God standing before him. But I believe you're stopped dead in your tracks and you have to become silent and reverence if you say that in the presence of him who pleased not himself. And that record is that one from Philippians 2, verse 3. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of what? Mind. Lowliness of mind, core. Let each esteem other, the other believer, better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of what? Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Who? Verse 6, Jesus Christ, 
being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to agree with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a slave, a doulos, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of what? That's why you don't scream, yell, or cry, saying that it, this invades your sacred rights as a son of God in your standing with him, that you're absolutely stopped dead in your tracks, and you become silent and reverent in the presence of God's only begotten son who pleased not himself. Years ago, I belonged to a fraternity. Would have enjoyed a sorority more, but they wouldn't let me in. Didn't have the curves at the right place. Uh, we used to have a have a road coming from what Lakeland College going to uh, Plymouth, Wisconsin, which one time was the great cheese center in the world, in the United States. I don't think world. I don't know. And we we were, we had a great road went there. And one night we were traveling along, and somebody said, "Boy, this is like a female road." And I said, what do you mean, female road? He said, well, it's got more curves than a bath towel goes around a sorority house. So, I don't know. This fraternity I belonged to, of which in my senior year I was president, was called Mu Lambda Sigma. Today I'm tremendously blessed that I once had the privilege of belonging to it and then also being president of it. We had a real great principle, and this was it. God first, others second, I am willing to be third. That was the great basic principle of the Mu Lambda Sigma fraternity of which I was praising. And thinking about this tonight, it came back to my consciousness, where we put God first, others second, and I am willing to be third. That is Romans 14. Now, in the light of all this, I'd like to conclude tonight reading to you 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Am I not an apostle? That's pretty good. This is Paul, the greatest man who had the revelation of the mystery. Nobody's fool, man just right at the top echelon as an apostle. Of all the men that lived, he's the only one that received the revelation of the mystery, right? And he's nobody's second-rate Christian. He is mature, mature. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Don't I have the liberty and the freedom? Why, have I not seen Christ, Jesus our Lord? And don't I have the evidence you're my work in the Lord? If I be not an apostle unto others, yea, doubtless I am to you. For the seal, the proof of my apostleship, you are in the Lord, because I led you to the Lord, Paul said. Taught you the word, the mystery. Others may think I'm an income poop. Not an apostle unto others, they don't think, but... You have no reason to doubt it, Paul says. My answer to them that do examine me is this. Judge, criticize. 
Have we not power to eat and drink? Liberty, freedom, exousia. Remember, as I worked those words with you a while ago, have we not power to eat and drink? Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles and as the brethren of the Lord and Cephas? Or I only and Barnabas have not we power to forbear working? Who goeth to warfare any time at his own charges? Who planteth a vineyard and eateth not of the fruit thereof? Or who feedeth a flock and eateth not of the milk of the flock? Say I these things as a man, or saith not the law the same also? Law does say the same, for it's written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn, as he's supposed to eat that corn when he gets chance. Doth God take care of oxen? Or saith he altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, it is written, that he that plows shall plow in hope, and that he that thresheth in hope shall be partaker of his hope. If we have sown unto you spiritual things, it is a great thing if we reap your carnal things, if others be partakers of this power over you, are not we rather? We have not used this power, but suffer all things, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. Do ye not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple, and they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar? Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. But I've used none of these things, neither have I written these things, that it should be so done unto me. For it were better for me to die than that any man should make my glorying void. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I am entrusted with an oikonomia, dispensation of the gospel which was committed unto me. A dispensation I am entrusted with, the mystery. What's my reward then? Verily that when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel without charge of Christ is not in the text. That I abuse not my power, my liberty, my freedom in the gospel. For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all. Doulos, that I might gain the more, more people. Unto the Jews I became as a what? that I might gain, win the Jews. To them that are under the law is under the law, 
that I might win them who are under the law, to them that are without Gentiles as without law, being not without law to God, but under the law of Christ, that I might gain them that are without the Gentiles. To the immature, the weak, became I as immature, that I might win the immature. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save, make whole, win some. And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partaker, have a share therein. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, everyone, but one receiveth the prize, so run that ye may obtain. For the prize, the reward, every man that striveth for mastery is temperate, contains himself. They do it to obtain a corruptible garland, a corruptible crown, but we do it to obtain a what? Incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly. In other words, I do not run weaving around. I had a straight course. And so fight I, not as one who just beats the air, but I keep my body under. I contain my body. and bring it into subjection. Make that body, that mind, that controls that body, adhere to the revelation of the word. To bring that into subjection, which is the love of God in the renewed mind in manifestation without hypocrisy. Lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself shall be a castaway from the rewards. Again, so then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. And the account for us, the born-again believer, is to receive the rewards. That's why we walk in the renewed mind, love of God, without any hypocrisy, and without any criticism for any other immature Christian than you are. And I'd like to close where I began this evening with you in that which I wrote. If a million people love you, I will be one of them. If only a thousand people love you, I'll be one of the thousand who cares. If only a hundred people love you, I will be the one who cries. If only two people love you, I'll be the one on your right side. But if no one on earth is left to love you, you'll know that I have died, but God is still alive.